Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Charlie Bressler. Charlie is the executive director of The Life You Can Save, a nonprofit founded by Peter Singer that inspires and empowers people to take action in the fight against extreme poverty. Charlie was previously the president of the Men's Warehouse and a professor of clinical psychology. Later in the episode, we dig into Charlie's path from psychology to men's fashion to fighting global poverty. The inspiration for this episode is a release of the 10th anniversary edition of the book The Life You Can Save by Peter Singer. The book offers an overview of the intensity of global poverty and the related human suffering, and it also makes a compelling case to donate more to more effective charities. Contrary to popular belief, there are charities that have proven track records of delivering effective interventions, some of which can save a child's life for less than $2,000. The new edition of The Life You Can Save is available for free in ebook and audiobook format. The audiobook is read by a number of celebrities, including Kristen Bell, Paul Simon, and Stephen Fry. In addition to the book, we discuss where The Life You Can Save is now, the Shalapan Thought Experiment, the myth that we don't know what works in global poverty and health, why an empathy fund may be more sustainable, Framing effective giving as an opportunity versus an obligation. Why being a doctor doesn't do as much good as you might think. How Charlie's democratic socialism informs his life. And why effective altruists aren't as radical as you might expect them to be. If you're familiar with effective altruism, I'd recommend skipping to about 35 and a half minutes in. Most of the ideas we discussed for the bulk of the episode are probably familiar to you, but you may be interested in our conversation on the intersection of effective altruism and radical politics. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Garrison Lovely. And if you want to reach out to the show, we have an email address at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com, all of which can be found in the show notes. Here is Charlie Bressler. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So can you just start out by laying out the work that The Life You Can Save does? I think I'd like to start out by just saying where The Life You Can Save is right now. Sure. Um, Our number one goal for the rest of 2019 which is fast coming to an end and 2020 is to distribute the updated version of peter singer's 10th anniversary edition of the life you can save we've created an ebook and a celebrity read audiobook and we believe we can create different formats in addition to the full books and that we can distribute that information across many many different platforms with the help of many partners so that our goal is to get about 450,000 people who've downloaded the book by the end of 2020. And that is our major goal. In order to also continue to show our growth in terms of money raised for great organizations like Give Directly and our other recommended nonprofits, we also want to continue to mine high net worth individuals through events and networking. And we also want to continue to grow our retail donations and finally we want to raise more money for the life you can save itself because we believe that if we could add three to five more staff members um, in addition to spend more on events and partnership development and paid marketing that we could amplify the effect of Peter's work so in instance that's where we are right now um, I think it's better to talk about where we want to be than where we've been. We sound impressive on paper in the sense that we've grown about 10x in terms of the money we move, but it's still a very small number. And we think our leverage number, the money we move relative to what we spend, is about 11x in the last year or so. Cool. And so The Life You Can Save is an organization that was founded by Peter Singer, who also wrote a book of the same name like about 10 years ago. Is that right? Yes, exactly. 2009. And the focus is channeling more money to highly effective charities, helping people in uh, very, very poor situations around the world and, and helping people get access to like, things like healthcare. correct? Right. Thank you for filling in the, the gaps. And uh, I guess I assume too much sometimes with this, with this audience or any other audience. Um, exactly. That's well described. And these nonprofits are curated by The Life You Can Save. We are not a research organization like GiveWell. We use their fabulous research, impact matters, and it's definitely that we're curating it. So our mission is much more to distribute the message that Peter has and to distribute the great nonprofits that we support, but not to do the primary research. Yeah, so an evangelist for work that's already been done. Exactly. Cool. And so I guess before we go any further in that direction, can you just say what the uh, shallow pond thought experiment is? 
Yeah, so the Chalapon thought experiment that Peter, I guess he came up with it, maybe even before he wrote The Life You Can Save, I don't even know. I think it was 1971 was the paper oh, so that was, he wrote. Oh, it was 1972. So yeah. he came up with that when he wrote that original New York Times article. Anyway, the, it's a very simple idea that you're walking by a pond, you see a little girl drowning, you're wearing an expensive suit of clothing or expensive shoes, really doesn't matter, and he asks the question, would you dive in and save the little girl even if you would ruin your suit or clothing, the expensive clothes you're wearing? And everyone, of course, says, well, of course I would dive in and save the child. And then Peter goes on to pose the question, well, if you would save the child, do you know that there's approximately 5.3 million children every day, those are the current statistics, under five that are dying of largely preventable illnesses? And would you save those children? And if the answer is yes, then what are you doing to save those children? Just like, because it, you, would, you would spend $500 or lose your shoes or clothing do you give $500 to support those people? And basically, that's what it's about. Yeah, and, and so you said 5 million children, that's like every year are dying. Every year. Mostly preventable illnesses. Right, so I think it, if you do the math, uh, I think that I have the number right. If you do the math and you break it down today, today's, it, it's about 15,000 children per day dying. And of those, I would say somewhere between half and three quarters are clearly preventable, meaning they're dying from things that don't affect people who are living in the developed world. They may be dying from malaria or diarrhea or other infectious diseases that are preventable, easily preventable. Yeah, and, and so another fact that I think is relevant to this is that some people might say like, oh, we don't know what works or, or it's very expensive to save someone's life. But, you know, GiveWell's research, I think the latest research on the Against Malaria Foundation pegs it at like $1,600 or $1,800 to save somebody's life statistically by distributing enough anti-malarial bed nets to, to children. Right. So you don't know which of those bed nets is saving somebody's life. But if you look at the number, you get estimates as low as $500 and as, and as high as $2,600. But most people of means, if they literally were walking by a pond and they had a, some clothing on that was miraculously worth $2,600 and they saw a drowning child, they would dive in and save that life. So we're constantly asking ourselves, why aren't we saving more of those children? And that's not just people who are not doing anything to save children overseas, but it's all of us who are giving substantial amounts of money away, ask ourselves those questions when we go out to dinner, when we go on a trip that we don't need to take. I mean, I think once you've achieved the consciousness that those children are dying unnecessarily and that they can be easily saved, then you're asking that question of yourself all the time, even if, like in the case of my wife and myself, we're giving a substantial amount of money of our net, in, of our net wealth away we still could do more. And Peter says the same thing. He gives about a third of his income every year away, but he could give away half. So we're all falling short of the mark. It's just a matter of how sh short of the mark we're falling. One of the things you hear from people is, well, I don't really know if my money would do that. I know that if I dive in and save that girl, she would really be saved. But how do I know that if I give money to Africa or Southeast Asia, that the money will really go to the right place? And that is often used as an excuse for not giving the money. And what we say is there are 22 nonprofits that are on our website or GiveWell's website, and you can look at those nonprofits and you can be sure that that money is performing a cataract surgery for $50 that restores somebody's sight or delivering malaria uh, insecticide-treated bed nets for saving lives for somewhere between $500 and $2,600. So if you want to sort of make yourself feel better for not doing anything, you can do that, but the reality is that there's well-vetted nonprofits, many of which are using the same research techniques, randomized controlled trials that were the economist just won the Nobel Prize for, and so you really can't use that excuse legitimately. You can use the excuse, but it's not really legitimate. Yeah, and I think, obviously, there's some important psychological difference between somebody walking past a person in the shallow pond and somebody just going about their life and not donating you know all the income that they don't really need because almost everybody is doing the latter and very few people we hope would do the former um but from an ethical standpoint there's no real significance to geography 
right? Like just because somebody's far away from me doesn't make their life worth any less. No, we operate on the prefer- on the premise that all lives, all things being equal, all lives are of equal value, which is the same as you'd see on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation website. That doesn't mean that my life is worth the same as a five-year-old living in Africa, because clearly that life is worth more than my life since I'm 70 years old, and I have 65 years on that individual that they haven't lived. So when I say all things being equal, I mean roughly the same age, roughly the same life expectancy. And so we want to save that child in Africa who's five years old more likely than you'd want to save me, for example, sad as that may be for my family or me. But the reality is that, you know, that kid's life could be saved for a few thousand dollars, whereas the United States, like Department of Transportation, will pay like up to like $10 million, I think, to save someone's life using like traffic uh, safety materials. And, and that's like the Department of Transport like puts that number on right. an American life. My sister-in-law, who is a really interesting case because she spent her life dedicated to poverty law and has never made the kind of money she could have made as a lawyer, um, argues against what the work that the Life You Can Save is doing and that Peter advocates by saying there's tremendous amount of suffering right there in Seattle where she lives and we live and why not charity begins at home? Why not save those people? And the answer is those people's lives are of equal value to the lives that we're trying to save in South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa. But the problem is to save one of those lives or to get a homeless person off the street and rehabilitate it you can save dramatically more lives in the developing world. So the reason that we focus on the developing world isn't that we value those lives more, it's that you can save so many more of them than you can save in Seattle or San Francisco or wherever. Or even some of the great work that's done by nonprofits in the United States like St. Jude's Hospital. It might cost a million dollars to save a child from leukemia, and of course we would all want to save our child from leukemia, but if you do the math, you can think about how many children that you can save uh, in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia for a million dollars. It doesn't mean we wouldn't save somebody's life who, in our own family if we could, but you have to understand what the numbers look like. Yeah, there's a re- very salient example from uh, Toby Ord's paper, The Moral Imperative Towards Cost-Effectiveness. And he explains that a seeing-eye dog to train in the United States, it costs like $50,000. But a cataract surgery that can prevent somebody from going blind in a developing country can cost $50. Or restore Yeah, completely restore their sight. And so it's the difference between helping somebody, maybe in a very big way, who is already blind. You know, it might be a huge quality of life increase to go from not having a seeing eye dog to having one. But to compare that to having your sight restored, I think everybody would choose to have their sight restored. And then you multiply that a thousand times over. And that's the like discrepancy that you see. It's many orders of magnitude in terms of cost effectiveness when you start going to the poorest places in the world. What I ask people to do when I speak to audiences, not of effective altruists, but of the regular donor person who's giving some money away or lots of money away, is to consider the possibility of diversifying where they give. So you don't have to abandon your favorite charities you can do two things. You can take the amount of money you're currently giving and give some of it to these proven, highly effective charities overseas. Or you can increase the amount of money that you're giving, which you can probably afford to do without sacrificing anything of equal value to saving a life or restoring sight, because that's really the measure is what you're doing with your money of equal value to that. And you can you can give more money or you can, as I said, just divide up what you're currently giving and just divide it differently. But you don't need to abandon the money that you're currently giving, the charities that you're currently giving to. Yeah, a friend of mine has what he calls an empathy fund. So three quarters of his donations he's now put towards effective altruism, nonprofits, and a quarter for like local things like homelessness in New York. And you know, in some local naive sense, it would be better for 100% of it to go to you know the most effective things around the world. But if he's more likely to sustain like this portfolio approach to uh, giving over a much longer period of time, and more people are open to that type of thing because they do, you know, when they f- see homelessness in New York, which is just everywhere, you feel like this really strong urge to do something, and to just suppress that. Like most people are not going to do that. Most people don't have the whatever bundle of traits that people in the effective altruism community have who are able to just crunch numbers and go, no, I should actually 
like never give to homeless people. I should only give to people in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so given that that's the case, it's better to have an approach that more people are willing to sign on to and get um, them to do it than to have the strictest, you know, most stringent requirements that only a handful of people will ever take on. Correct. It, I agree with you. And I wouldn't say that, not that I should be the role model, but I know that my wife and I both are likely to give some small amount of the money we give away each year to something more local. And I actually have to confess that I sometimes give money to people on the street, which is probably... How dare you, sir? Yeah, which is probably the worst thing to do. But And I also have supported a farmer in Africa now for years, uh, a single farmer who I've never met, who I met on the internet, who's helping to support 26 other farmers uh, in his community. And he's struggling and has lifted himself out of extreme poverty and has presented me with numerous business plans. And so uh, I've supported him. Why do I do that? Because it is a very clear connection that I have with this gentleman. And I, maybe all the other money we've given away creates this moral licensing where I can, where I can choose to give to this cause that may not be as effective. And I think one of the things that the EA community needs to do is sort of have a window into uh, the way most people think if we're going to move, as you said, Garrison, the most money to the most effective nonprofits, it'll only be done by understanding the way the vast majority of people think and react emotionally. The other side of that is that we have to do a dramatically better job as effective altruists or as people into effective giving. We need to do a dramatically better job of trying to figure out how to get people to understand at an emotional level what's going on with those children through better videos, through better content. Um, and it's our job to bring the reality of that experience of watching your child die of malaria or watching your child be unsighted or die of diarrhea when you know it's preventable. And we don't do a particularly good job as a community of making those emotional experiences live for people. And we just need to work to continue to do a better job. So that's interesting because I have a little bit of like a opposite reaction where like if you show people the horror of, you know, factory farming, for example, some of them will be really motivated to, you know, get involved and fight the good fight, donate, start working in an effective animal advocacy organization, whatever. But most people just say, turn it off, unplug the TV, um, kind of stick their head in the sand because it's it's too intense. And, and so I think there's this interesting difference between how Peter Singer, the you know philosopher who kicked off effective altruism through his ideas, um, especially the, the paper from the 70s with the shallow pond thought experiment, you know, those ideas were around for quite a while. But I think it was like Toby Ord and Will McCaskill changing the framing from an obligation, like you have to, or any person who adopts consistent moral principles would, you know, be violating their ethics to walk past the kid drowning and, and to also not donate to effective charities. Instead, framing it as an opportunity. Like imagine you ran into a burning building and saved somebody's life. Now imagine you could do that once or twice a year consistently. And and well, I, that, I think people are just more open to that. And, and you need both, right? Like, the life you can save is more and more leading with opportunity. And I think Peter is leading with opportunity. I think if you read the updated book, there's tremendous amount of discussion of the opportunities that are available to Peter. So I think he, although he's an ethicist, I think he understands, including that the research would suggest that people will respond better to opportunity than obligation. As a philosopher, he wants to talk about both. But I think by making the opportunity salient that you're not just showing emotionally what happens to a mom who watches her child die, but you're showing the joy she has when her child doesn't die or when her child is, re is restored sight. I think that's the opportunity side. And for example, Fred Hollis has an amazing video where they show a girl um, getting her sight back for the first time at age, I guess five, and she sees her mother for the first time when they remove the bandages. And it brings, I mean, you'd have to be really cold-hearted for it not to bring tears to your eyes. I showed it to a group a couple of times in the last week and a half, and uh, it really does get to the audience. So there's opportunity, but it's also the sadness at the same time if that doesn't happen. So you can try to combine those two things. Yeah, yeah I mean, because both things are true, right? You know, the opportunity exists because of like massive inequality and because the opportunity exists, 
in the shallow pond experiment like there's an opportunity to save someone's life but like most people would also say it's an obligation to be like a quote-unquote good person absolutely yeah and you know I'm, I'm guilty of this problem where we led with the shallow pond thought experiment um and instead of the burning building you know thought experiment i i find yeah the opportunity to be a, a an effective framing for getting people interested but ultimately the obligation is far more persuasive and logically consistent to me if people go back and read the 10th anniversary edition of the book i think they'll see that peter has really decided to talk a lot about the opportunities that people have. And frankly, I'm sure that it's the opportunities that he has had to save lives that's kept him motivated all these years, not just some abstract ethical belief, but the actual opportunity to save lives. And when I think about who saved, you know, who, who alive has saved so many lives, there are probably few people alive that have contributed to saving more lives than Peter Singer. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I. I'm reminded of a conversation I had for this show with uh, Spencer Greenberg talking about kind of like all the suffering and happiness in the world and, and the intensity of, you know, knowing that that exists. And he just said it's a matter of uh, framing, like which you emphasize, you know, you can focus on all the terrible things that are happening in the world. And, you know, surely there's a ton, uh, whether you look at global poverty or factory farming or even wild animal suffering. Um, but then there's also just like immense joy that's happening every moment. And there is there are people getting their sight back. There are people, you know, falling in love. There are people having children. And it's just you're not wrong to focus on either. It's just like a matter of what is more helpful for staying motivated and, and keeping your spirits up uh, when things get tough. I definitely have been involved in this work now as executive director for The Life You Can Save and a donor, a major donor, because of the opportunity. And I never thought I would have the opportunity to save lives and reduce suffering at this scale. And it feels like an incredible privilege. The privilege isn't just to be a good person, um, but the privilege is to really be able to save lives. And particularly since I don't consider myself a particularly brave person, I never <laughs> expected to save a lot of lives. Um, so it's really nice to say that you can do it if you're a generous person, you have this opportunity. You don't have to be a brave person, which was a great relief to me. Yeah, I mean, so I guess to get a little bit more personal, uh, you were the president of Men's Warehouse um, before you were the director of The Life You Can Save. Right, and before that I was a seven years a psychology professor, graduate school in social and clinical psychology. So I wasn't really doing a whole lot to ameliorate sufferings, let alone save lives. I was training, uh, I want to be careful here, I'm tempted to say, a bunch of people who became mediocre PhD psychologists. Some of them were fantastic. Some Hopefully of them, none of them are listening. <laughs> well, they're probably mostly dead by now. It was so long ago. But um, and then there were some amazing ones. But and then I was I thought a pretty compassionate executive in a retail clothing company. But we still had a supply chain where people were working, maybe not under the worst conditions because we were producing mostly suits, which requires some skilled labor. But still, there was, a, would say, a relatively dirty supply chain, both from a human point of view as well as an environmental point of view. And executives, even though we weren't paid as much as most executives in $1.5 billion companies, were still making dramatically more than people who were working in stores or running stores. So, um, yeah, I think that the ability to help Peter with the life you can save and try to grow has been a big change in my life. And my wife, who's a dedicated family physician, feels that her donations to The Life You Can Save and some of the intellectual contribution that she's made to The Life You Can Save has actually done far more good than she has ever been able to do in her medical practice. Yeah, so I, I imagine most people don't <laughs> make the jump from executive to, oh, I mean, there's often the case of going from like an executive in a big company to being on a board of a nonprofit. Um, but I I'd imagine it's, it's more rare to dive headfirst the way you have. And, and my impression of a lot of these is that they're kind of like feel good positions where you've put in your time in the private sector, you've made millions and millions of dollars. And now you get this like, look at me, I'm on the board for XYZ charity that like maybe isn't that effective. Um, but I guess like talk me through your mindset when you were uh, an executive and, and what prompted the, the switch for you. 
Well, first of all, if you read if you read the afterword of the updated edition, which is available on our website, um, you can read the afterword that I write, and it describes the story. So I won't give it all away during this interview, but I urge you to download the ebook or the audio book and read the whole thing or listen to the whole thing. But if you don't, um, among the parts you do listen to, you can go to the afterword if you're really fascinated by why I did what I did. You can probably read the four-page uh, piece that I wrote there. But the short story is that I was, I've been an activist uh, in college. I was always worried about wealth inequality. So when I read Peter Singer's book in, in 2012, it wasn't like an epiphany for me. It was like, oh yeah, this is what I should have been doing all this time. And so the, the switch in 2008 when I stepped down as president was motivated by the realization that I needed to do something more in keeping with my values. Plus I'd been in this retail company uh, for 18 years that wasn't exactly living by my own values. And so I wanted to step down and then I was fortunate enough to be able to do some really interesting things. And then I found Peter Singer and I did that. So it wasn't an unusual journey for me. The unusual piece was the 18 years in the retail company. Given my values and my politics and my experience, what was what was interesting was that I deviated for so long. Um, and I wasn't earning to give. Um, I was, as I often tell Peter, it wasn't like I went to work at the men's well. I was thinking, oh, I'll make, as you say, millions and millions of dollars and then give it away. I didn't think about that at all. I just thought, oh, I'll support my family and I'll do this and I won't be a clinical psychologist, which didn't break my heart uh, exactly. And I won't train any more wonderful graduate students. Uh, and uh, so that's. Yeah, so it wasn't that hard for me. It wasn't unusual. But I would agree it is a bit unusual for someone to work really hard for seven years as a volunteer for a nonprofit um, after that career I had, and particularly maybe at my age. Uh, but my wife is also 70, and she's still working uh, working with poor people in a medical clinic in Kitsap County, Washington. So uh, we both feel like we want to continue to work, and uh, we still are able to spend lots of time with our children and grandchildren. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have this conception in their head that switching from a for-profit company to a nonprofit or to something that is like more do-goodery focused um, is like this big sacrifice where you know they won't like the work won't be as interesting or the people won't be as sharp or uh, you know the money won't be as good. And I mean, you're going to take a pay cut, <laughs> jump into the nonprofit I took a sector. big pay cut. But I also want to jump <laughs> in and percent. say that I have a 17-year-old Toyota that my, my in-laws gave us that runs perfectly. And I have a small Subaru that also runs perfectly. And so I'm not sure having a fancier car would make my life any better. Um, and it's not like my wife and I are living like paupers by any means. There are effective altruists who make, might make much bigger material sacrifices than Diana and I have made. And I think that's great, but that's not for everyone. Um, and we live quite nicely, but by probably the standards of most people who've had the kind of positions that Diane and I have had, we don't live as well as we could live. And I think we live better than we could live because we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having just made the jump two months ago from the private sector to working in the nonprofit space, you know, it's early, but I've never felt more motivated by the work that I do. And I think that is worth like a very hard to quantify amount and just going home and, and still feeling like there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of people that need help because uh, there's always going to be more, but feeling like I'm much closer to doing the most I could be doing than I ever have been in the past is um, certainly worth like whatever other trade-offs that I've made. Yeah, Diane and I would still say the highlight of our lives is raising two wonderful children, even though that really, from an ethical point of view, is not the highlight of our lives. The highlight of our lives is the work that we're both doing with The Life You Can Save and the financial support we've given. But definitely the second best thing that I've ever done in my life is to volunteer to work with Peter Singer and try to build this organization. And, and so you mentioned that your your wife thinks she's done more good through just her donations than her career as being a doctor. Um, could you just unpack that for us? Well, if you think about the number of patients she's seen and the fact that she spent a lot of that time in Marin County where there are lots of other good doctors, and so you think of marginal impact in being a good doctor at where she worked in her private practice, uh, where she is very compassionate and a very competent doctor versus who would have had that job if she didn't do it. 
she made a I think a marginal improvement, but it's it's not that great. Whereas the money that she's given to start and develop uh, the life you can save and support me and my role as executive director is worth. I mean, it's really hard to say the number of lives that have been saved. You could say, well, if you didn't do it, Charlie, somebody else would have done it. So what's your marginal impact? And I think there weren't that many people that wanted to step up and donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the life you can save going or volunteer to run it. Maybe now we can find that person. If there's anybody who wants to volunteer to be executive director of the life you can save for free, um, then I would say my marginal impact, assuming they were good, or, or very good would be minimal, and then I could no longer feel like I was doing such a great thing. But I think right now, unfortunately, my marginal impact has probably been pretty big. Yeah, so, so what you're doing there is the counterfactual, yeah. imagining what would have happened had you not done whatever right. decision. Right. And when you look at you know becoming a doctor, it's like one of the most classic, oh, you're gonna do good with your career professions, but um, it's not just the people you're directly helping, it's the question of like who would have been helped had they not been there. Right. Yeah, and, and so this is all predicated on the nonprofits that the Life You Can Save recommending. They're very, very effective at, at helping people. Uh, could you just give a few examples of, of what work you recommend? Right, and I, I also would point out that the value of the work in supporting the Life You Can Save is that, at least historically, we've had a tremendous amount of leverage. What I mean by that is that for every dollar the Life You Can Save spends, we raise $11 for the types of nonprofits that you can find on our website, thelifeyoucansave.org. And by looking at those charities, you'll see why it's so great that we can spend a dollar and raise 11 or more dollars for those organizations. Those organizations range from Give Directly, which gives direct cash transfers in the developing world, and it's been largely East Africa, um, to Living Goods that has empowers women to sell medical supplies that are much needed at discounted prices and at the same time lift themselves out of extreme poverty, to... Um, <clears throat> excuse me, to AMF that supplies insecticide-treated bed nets for $2 a net that covers uh, roughly two people for three years um, and ensures that those bed nets are used effectively because there are other sort of more nefarious ways to use a bed net and they make sure that when they're distributed they're used properly and they have tremendously effective ways of monitoring the use rate. Um, and we have Fischler Foundation, which performs uh, operations on women who've given birth under less than ideal con conditions, which has caused tears uh, that cause women to become incontinent with either feces or urine, which creates this, as you can imagine, horrible smell, which leads them to become ostracized from their communities, their husbands, their children. Those operations cost about $450. They can be performed relatively easily, although you have to train the surgeons, which Fistula Foundation has also been responsible for doing. And so you can restore, basically restore the life of a woman who's had an obstetric fistula for $450. Um, those are an example of the charities, but I urge everybody to go to thelifeyoucansave.org and look at those charities and, and read the best charities and go through them. Um, you, if you want more depth, but less easily read, you can go to givewell.org and read on their website about many of the same charities. I think the difference is the GiveWell that did the primary research is a much more um, deep dive into what those nonprofits are doing and what the evidence was. The Life You Can Save is really trying to make what we say smart giving simplified, and so it's saving people time uh, so it's not doing the primary research. So it depends what kind of research you want to look at. But GiveWell.org, TheLifeYouCanSave.org, um, both are great places to go to look at these different nonprofit and giving opportunities. Yeah, I, I would echo all of that. Um, GiveWell is, is super in-depth for the really hardcore people interested in exactly what their cost models estimate. You can change assumptions on moral weights and, and everything. Uh, but the life you can save is, is definitely more approachable and, and gets the, uh, the gist of it. And ultimately it's about directing your donations to the most effective places, which these are 
among the most effective places in the world. And recently we've added an all charities appeal, which has actually become very popular, where we just divide your donation by 22 and distribute it for you to these various nonprofits if you really can't make up your mind. It's like the index fund approach. Yeah. Um, cool. And, and so you've mentioned this a bit uh, and, and doing some research, I've found that you uh, identify as a democratic socialist, which I think is atypical within the effective altruism community for reasons that are not totally clear to me. Um, this is also where Eileen, can you talk about like what your politics have informed throughout the course of your life, like how you came to them? I came to them uh, as a sophomore in college um, during the anti-Vietnam War and uh, I was exposed to a number of civil rights people, a number of anti-war activists, a number of Marxist-Leninists at NYU where I was an undergraduate. I read a lot of different types of history written from different theoretical perspectives, but the two people that had the biggest influence on me were George Orwell, who was a virulent anti-communist, but still I would call him a democratic socialist, although very cynical. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people think that he's not a socialist because he wrote so vehemently against communism, but I was a pretty strong anti-communist myself, um, not in the McCarthy vein, but in the in the vein of believing in, in democratic socialism. And I can distinguish that, if we want, Garrison, from social democracy, but that's a rather uh, complicated thing, and I don't know if it's beyond the scope of this interview. But Noam Chomsky was the other person that I became incredibly interested in at that time, and Noam Chomsky is what you might call um, a libertarian socialist. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I identified at the time as a libertarian socialist. But I was more attracted to a variety of left-wing ideas than most people. And then I taught history for three years and it informed the way I taught history and the books I chose. And um, I tried to lead my students to question some of the liberal democratic assumptions that they'd grown up with with their parents. I taught in two different upper middle class uh, secondary schools, one private, one public. What were some of those books? Oh, The Limits of Power, The Politics of War by Gabriel Coco, The World the Slaveholders Made by Eugene Genovese, um, a number of uh, articles written by various feminists when I was teaching 19th century uh, feminism and teaching to distinguish between radical feminism, bourgeois feminism, and socialist feminism. I can't remember all of them. There was a book uh, came out of Stanford by a bunch of anthropologists called Women, Culture, and Society. Probably all these books are out of print now, but... Uh, I'll they see what were, I can find and put yeah, them in the show notes. I certainly am per- willing to put in an email for you, Garrison, or anybody else who's interested in reading these old books if they can dig them up. They were all great. My Many of my students liked them. Many of my students probably didn't read them. Um, <laughs> But some of them were very large monographs, like five, 600 pages. Um, So it informed my teaching. And when I became a psychologist, I think I took a kind of materialist perspective towards psychology. And I was interested in how behavior led to self-perception. And I don't have time to get into that. But I think my background in Marxism um, affected how I saw psychology, not in a way like Vygotsky or other Soviet psychologists, but in a bit of a different way. And I think it really helped me get through graduate school quickly because uh, it made it easy for me to resonate with my dissertation director who saw things differently but was really, whether he knew it or not, kind of a materialist. And then when I ended up teaching psychology, I just always interjected politics into my teaching and tried to talk about uh, a materialist perspective to psychology. And when I ran an anxiety and stress disorders clinic in the heyday of cognitive behavioral interventions, we were behavioral cognitive, so the thinking part came from the behavior part, which again, I know it doesn't sound like Marxism, but sort of derived from that in some ways. And then in business, it didn't follow me at all, although I was always very open with my about my politics, which always seemed a bit weird to people. But what it did do is it made me, I think, very compassionate towards the men and women who worked in our stores and in our warehouse and distribution center. And um, I just think I was not in an absolute sense super compassionate, but in a relative sense more compassionate than most people who maybe didn't have the same politics. And of course, it's how I raised my children. They both uh, were raised 
with a democratic socialist perspective. My son went to Berkeley, uh, had a bit of a reaction against it for a while, but in the end, uh, I'd say that he became sort of a libertarian socialist himself, and now he's an organic farmer, so he's not that political, he just tries to survive. And my daughter became a social democrat, um, but definitely would identify with being a socialist and uh, is the second, uh, I think, most uh, significant administrator in a county on the Canadian border. So I think how we, Diane and I both raised our children. Uh, my, my wife has almost identical politics. Of course, we grew up together. We met in high school. Wow. So, so that's the rundown. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. And a few others. Um, oh, so. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. Always good as the uh, interviewer when you get more than you ask for. Um, so, yeah, I, I see very few people identifying as democratic socialists in, in the effective altruism community. The plurality of people in EA identify as center left when asked, and then the next not too far down is, is left. But who knows what that means in, in people's minds? Um, and anecdotally, it's you know less radical politics than I would expect because to me, effective altruism is an extremely radical uh, worldview to take on in the sense that you think that the way society is organized and operates is just really, really far off from where it should be. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason so many of these interventions are so cost effective is that inequality at the global scale is, is just insane. It's so hard to comprehend um, how poor some people are relative to how rich some other people are. And the fact that somebody can have their life saved for a few thousand dollars when, you know, similar uh, people just in a different country are being saved for millions of dollars and like that's considered like cost effective um, is just because of this inequality. And I guess like in your experience, have, have you seen any tension between your politics and the, the people you interact with in the EA community? I don't interact with a lot of people in the EA community. Um, tonight I'm giving a talk at, at an EA event in New York, but in general... Um, I've been sort of outside the EA community, um, so I really can't say there's either been um, convergence or uh, or discord uh, with people in the EA community. The little bit I've seen suggests to me that there's um, a lack of hist historicity or whatever the right word is in the EA movement, and so I don't think that most EAs really know a lot about politics or the range of political options or what is good and bad and ugly in the socialist and Marxist movements. And so I think if anything, it's a, it's just a certain focus on many, many different things in the A community and basically not a focus on history or po political science or sociology. And so they haven't read some of the same people that I've come across and probably not that many have read, for example, Noam Chomsky or if they've read Orwell, they may not be seeing it in the same historical con context because they may not know much about the Spanish Civil War or the context in which Orwell wrote. And it's beyond the scope of, of really their interests. So I haven't had a lot of conflict with politics in the A movement, but I think it may be because it really hasn't informed... We've been out... With the Life You Can Save, even though, it, ironically, it's... I mean, even though it was started by Peter Singer, it's tended to be outside the the EA movement. Uh, years ago, Will McCaskill said to me, Charlie, I never hear about the life you can save. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. So the other night when I was in London for our book launch, Will was there, and I referenced that conversation. I said, well, Will, I hope you understand now what we're up to. But to a large extent, one of the reasons for our lack of visibility has been that we haven't had a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so to make yourself visible in the way that at least I wanted to make our cells visible required staff and I think another thing that's different from the life you can save from many other EA organizations and I could be wrong here is that we pay wages that are comparable to the private sector not the high end of the private sector but uh, we pay wages that are comparable to the sort of I would say 25 to 50th percentile in, in the with a cap I mean my salary for example which is zero isn't comparable to the private sector, but 
we're paying people uh, more than I think most other EA organizations are paying. So we can't have the size staff for the amount of money that we've got uh, that other EA organizations do, which may be a mistake on my part, but it definitely, I think, reflects my politics, which is not a politics of scarcity, mm. but a politics of sharing the good, the good that exists. And I think one thing that should unite us all is that we all want to live in a world where philanthropy is not necessary. Yep. And I think that to have a world where philanthropy is not necessary, we need a universalist politics. We need a politics that transcends borders. And we need a politics that solves climate change. And we need a politics that um, can make sure that there wealth inequality that exists not only in the United States but worldwide is, is, is bridged. And so for all of that, I think you need democratic socialism or at least a change in our current political social system. But I don't think most uh, EAs get there. But that's just my own thinking. But what I think we all would agree is that we don't want to live in a world where philanthropy is necessary. Yeah, yeah, I agree with pretty much all of that. Um, and it is a failure of our current system that nonprofits need to exist. But um, it's not only our current system. This goes back to colonialism yeah. and imperialism and all kinds of things that have been happening since at least the 15th century and maybe earlier, but we can start at least in the 15th, 16th century with the colonial movements and then move on from there. But we have inherited the results of that. But one thing that I would be quick to point out is that one thing that capitalism has done extraordinarily well is create new forms of technology, um, wealth, even if it's poorly distributed. And I think it's also at the same time um, had a really adverse impact on the environment as we're seeing, but it isn't just uh, traditional monopoly capitalism. It's also seen in state socialism or state capitalism, whatever you want to call the Chinese government. I don't know. I always refer to it as a state capitalist society, but I don't know what anybody else is thinking about it these days. That's also how I would identify it, but I'm far from an expert. Me either. Um, yeah. And if somebody is interested in learning more about the history or, or the radical politics, where would you point them? Uh, well, I'd love to talk to them if they're in the movement and they and they want to get involved in a conversation. But I is think there a good way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, Charlie at thelifeyoucansave.org. Cool. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, but I also think that going back and reading some of the really great books on American foreign policy by Gabriel Colco, The Politics of War, the Limits of Power, or even one of the original great ones by William Appleman Williams. I mean, going back and really looking at American foreign policy will be eye-opening for most people. I think reading Noam Chomsky's American Power and the New Mandarins, which was published in 1970, and again, I apologize because I'm referencing books from a long time ago. I think if you want to scan through New Left Review, even more modern stuff, I think that becomes really difficult if you don't have the background. You can read Christopher Hill if you want to read stuff about the English Revolution. I could go on, but I mean, I think there's so much out there, um, none of which is going to tell you how to help people live in the developing world right now. So if you don't have the time to do it, um, then don't do it. You should probably continue to keep plugging away at helping people uh, living in extreme poverty. Yeah, I'll, I'll just plug uh, Understanding Power, the Indispensable Chomsky, is a collection of Chomsky's thoughts on a huge range of topics, and that's a pretty good entry point into a radical reimagining of... But everyone should read 1984 oh, yeah. and and by George Orwell, or Looking Back on the Spanish War, but or Politics in the English Language. But I would say, read 1984, read it slowly, and imagine that it's written by somebody who is actually not a capitalist, but somebody who was looking cynically at both the systems of communism and capitalism. But 1984 is prophetic, and if you live in a world of Donald Trump and fake news, one really should read this book. Mm. I actually uh, read a, a good article in uh, Current Affairs, which is my favorite magazine, also looking at things from a libertarian socialist perspective, um, which criticizes 1984, and it's from a writer who's a fan of Orwell, um, basically saying authoritarianism is not that obvious. They they would not like actually be so in your face about all the things. And the real authoritarianism looks like a little bit more, um, like we're doing this for your own good, right? No, I, I think it's more subtle, but I think the idea about, yes, I think the book has to be read realizing that it's quite in your face. And I would agree with you 
that uh, the instruments of power can can operate subtly. Although what we're seeing now um, is not so subtle. It's pretty much out there. It's just bald-faced lies. It's much more of like Hitler, or uh, where if you tell a big enough lie long enough, loud enough, people will believe it. And uh, it's ironic that Trump talks about fake news. Yes, the liberal press has had a lot of fake news, but nothing like uh, what he's done. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I saw Hozier recently, and he's an Irish singer-songwriter who writes a lot of like political music. And he was talking about uh, subtlety and and the expectation of like coming up with something. A subtle in a protest song, but he was like, you know, in Hong Kong, they just killed some protesters. And if there's anything that's not subtle, it's murdering protesters. So mm-hmm. he said, fuck subtlety. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, anyway, Orwell remains uh, really important. And I think that reading the looking back on the Spanish War, politics, and homage the to Cat- language, Catalonia. And homage to Catalonia is just a longer version mm-hmm. of, the, of the essay, mm-hmm. looking back on the Spanish War. And then if you read politics in the English language and 1984, those three things together, you really get a sense of what the guy was talking about. And it's pretty prophetic, uh, given that it was written in the, I think it was written in the early 50s. Yeah, yeah, I think 1984 was like maybe 49 or 50 something. Yeah, certainly uh, around that time. Yeah, Um, and I'll just plug The Life You Can Save. I read it in preparation for this interview, and I was familiar with a lot of it just from being in the effective altruism community for a few years, but there's plenty of new material, and it's put together in in a really compelling narrative, and um, it was a good read. It's available for free in uh, ebook form and audiobook with a bunch of celebrity readings and uh, you're also on the audiobook, correct? I did. I read it. I read my little chapter at the end of the book. And, you know, people should go to our website. It's a new website. I think it's more accessible. And they can download the book. And then, most importantly, continue to share the book with other people. And uh, it's great. We're looking forward to more and more people being exposed to these um, compelling ideas about the opportunity we all have to save lives, uh, reduce suffering without being brave, which is the greatest thing for me. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.